The Accounting Matters Podcast lives up to its name. Every other week, we bring you a new episode where we cover vital accounting topics that actually matter to accounting professionals. Each episode, we introduce a new topic and then highlight and discuss the key areas. We're your hosts, Adam Olson and Zach Smith, and we hope you stick around for all things accounting from A to Z. Hi, hello, good morning. It's great to be with each of you. I'm Zach Smith, Embark's East Region Market President, and I'm joined with my co-host, Adam Olson, Embark's Accounting Advisory Practice Leader. On this week's episode, we'll be discussing the recent rule made by the SEC regarding pay versus performance that companies will need to keep top of mind for their proxy filings. Adam, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Glad to be here. So Adam, talk to me a little bit about the new pay versus performance. What should companies know about this recent rulemaking by the SEC? Yeah, so the rule um, itself, it came out kind of the... Q3 of 2022. So the end of August last year, the the SEC finally issued the final rule on pay versus performance, which at a high level, what it aims to do is basically for certain SEC registrants, they're now required to provide additional compensation disclosures about their executives pay and how that relates to the company's performance, right? It's pay versus performance. So it's pretty, pretty straightforward for what it's looking to achieve. But the rule itself also created an additional item, so item 402B um, in Reg SK, and it more or less creates new disclosures that need to be added to proxy statements um, or other information statements where the company presents executive compensation disclosures. Okay, so let's back up a little bit. Why did the SEC even issue this rule? What was some of the driving factors uh, that we needed to have these additional executive compensation disclosures? Yeah, the rule itself really kind of closed an existing mandate that was created under the Dodd-Frank Act, um, which basically said registrants need to disclose that relationship between how well a company's doing and what their executives make. Um, And the genesis for why the SEC decided to create the rule as it's intended was like, you know, we have to provide a framework that allows for information to be consistent, comparable, and give good decision useful um, basis for investors to understand like a registrant's executive compensation policies. And it's actually this rule's kind of been a long time coming. So back in like 2015, they actually kind of put forth an initial rule. There was a comment period that occurred back in that day. And then, you know, it, it more or less kind of lost traction. And, and it wasn't until really early 2022 that the SEC kind of decided to kick up the initiative again and then moved very quickly by opening up another comment period and then ultimately coming up with the final rule. So kind of went for a, a sleep for a moment there, but they brought it back. And now it's now it's effective starting with the 2023 proxy season. Okay. Now, before we even get into any of the details about what specifically is required around this rule, yep. talk to me a little bit about who's actually in impacted? Is it all SEC registrants? So it's not. Um, So the rule applies to registrants, except for those that are considered emerging growth companies. So a benefit there, again, for emerging growth companies, registered investment companies, and then foreign private issuers. Uh, One thing to note is that smaller reporting companies, so SRCs, they are in scope of the rule. Um, but they are afforded some kind of scaled down, more accommodated disclosures than than regular registrants. Okay. Now, speaking of disclosures, let's talk through some of the main requirements yep. that companies need to, to release. Yeah, there's three kind of major components that are made up of the rule. The biggest one is 
what's called the PVP table. So the pay versus performance table um, is, is the largest and most significant disclosure. And then in addition to that, there's this disclosure, which is referred to um, kind of in practice as the tabular list, which is just essentially like a list of financial performance measures. And then there's some more like kind of qualitative narrative type disclosures where you would describe how the, you know, the relationship works between what your executives pay and actually how the company performs. Um, so each of those have their own kind of nuances and, and things you have to navigate through. Uh, but those are kind of the three main buckets of disclosures. Okay. Well, let's go ahead and just start with the PVP table. Yep. Walk me through some of the highlights and requirements. There. Yeah. So that table, um, essentially, you've got to provide a five-year table of pay versus performance. And it really can be kind of segregated between kind of two categories. You kind of have your pay-focused items on the table, and then you've got your performance-focused items on the table. So from a pay focus area, you have to disclose total executive compensation that's reported in a company's summary compensation table or um, SCT. And that needs to be for their principal executive officer, um, as well as the average uh, total compensation for all of their other named executive officers or NEOs. Um, an additional paid kind of focus disclosure you have to make is the actual compensation paid. Um, and that's both to the principal executive officer as well as the other named officers. And then the other side of the table is then looking at performance. So you kind of lay out your pay, your pay metrics there, and then next to it, you're going to have all your performance metrics. And so there's, there's three kind of key performance metrics that are required. So one is a total shareholder return metric, and you have to provide that not only for the actual registrant themselves, uh, but you also have to provide that same metric for that registrant's peer group um, as they define their peer group. And then in addition to that, you've got to include net income, you know, very common <laughs> financial metrics. So net income as it's presented in the financial statements. And then lastly, there's this one where companies kind of decide um, what is kind of the most significant um, company-specific metric to include. And so they'll include that company-specific selected financial measure as well in that table. So Adam, you mentioned named executive officers that are included in this table. Who exactly qualifies as an NEO and to include in this average? Yeah, so the named executive officers, it really kind of follows the definition that's outlined in item 402. And so Generally, this includes, I mean, you've obviously got your principal executive officer, but then in addition to that, you're going to have your principal financial officers, typically your CFO. Um, and then you, you usually include the next three most highly compensated executives. And that, you know, that would be other than your, obviously your CEO or CFO. But then the rule also provides that you can also include up to two additional non-executive um, individuals who also might be highly compensated. And so the average amounts that you would include for the disclosure would include all those individuals except for the the primary uh, or sorry, the principal executive officer, because they're already being disclosed as an individual in that table. And so this really just includes the remainder of that group. Okay. So super helpful there. Let's talk about the two pay metrics that need to be included um, as well. Are there any of these that are already part of other disclosure requirements or will they have to be derived? Yeah. So the first one that kind of relates to the summary compensation table, I mean, that that essentially comes from other SEC disclosure requirements. So you're kind of like lifting that one over more or less. 
Um, but the real work actually comes around the next kind of pay focused disclosure, which is the uh, total like compensation actually paid. And that's generally something that most entities, at least how it's defined by the rule, aren't tracking currently. So it will be kind of a change in just like processes and policies and things like that to actually aggregate that information. Um, and, you know, to determine that amount of that compensation actually paid, you know, there's certain adjustments that um, are going to have to be made to kind of that summary compensation table. And, and they, they kind of relate to just kind of two key areas. So one's related to any pension benefits. And then probably the bigger one that most companies probably deal with more often is around equity awards. And the rule really outlines a lot of the specific adjustments you have to make to each of those items in order to arrive at that total compensation paid. Okay. So obvious question, why are these adjustments even necessary or needed? I know. I think just to make things hard. Yeah, that's what they, <laughs> that's what they like to do, right? Uh, no. So the the intent behind them. So like for the pension adjustments, for example, they're they're really kind of derived to ensure that the compensation actually paid reflects only those pension benefits that were earned during the year, and it kind of excludes other factors that might influence like pension amounts. So. It, the adjustments kind of help negate like changes in interest rates and how that could impact um, compensation or other like actuarial inputs or assumptions that are made that might actually change that value. So really kind of honing in on um, what's actually earned by that particular officer or that group of officers. And then for equity awards, um, you know, the amounts reported in your summary compensation table, they're you know, they're basically based on kind of U.S. gap accounting, which is going to be the fair value of the award at the grant date. Um, but the calculation of compensation actually paid under the final rule requires a different amount to be included. So instead of using your grant date fair value, um, you essentially have to kind of revalue those instruments um, at the end of kind of each reporting period. So each year that you have to put this disclosure in all the way through, you know, the vesting of that award. And so the purpose behind this is, again, they're saying we want you to remeasure this award, even though you don't have to do it for U.S. GAAP. So this is a difference than what you would be in your financial statements, because we want to better align this compensation disclosure with when the award is actually earned by that executive. So, you know, one thing we're telling clients, because we have this question come up quite a bit, you know, they're looking at this and they're like, wait a minute, this isn't something we're doing and more like, yes, this is a significant change, especially if you have complex equity awards that under GAAP, you would normally just have to deal with fair valuing that equity classified award on the grant date, and then you just leave it alone unless you modify it. Here, you now have to do a recurring valuation exercise every time you need to prepare this disclosure. So they're having to potentially engage their valuation specialists and obviously just allow for um, the time and effort to essentially have a process to keep those equity awards um, kind of remeasured each each time you need to prepare this disclosure. Okay, let's go ahead and put a pin in the pay side of things and swing okay. over to performance related metrics included in this table. Walk me through some of those elements. Yeah, so the first one we talked about was total shareholder return or TSR. And again, that has to be included not only for the registrants of the company itself, but also its peer group. Um, Total shareholder return, just definitionally, it's it's the same way it's defined in other SEC requirements. So an item 201E, but basically you're adding up, you know, cumulative dividends plus the increase or decrease in the company's stock price for the year divided by the share price for the beginning of the year. Um, you know, whether you're doing registrant or peer group TSR, they're essentially calculated the same way. But for peer group TSR, you normally will use like a weighted 
uh, market capitalization at the beginning of the period just to kind of get your peer group. Um, and then a lot of people ask like, well, how do we come up with our peer groups? Like what would, what do we generally use for that? And so the peer group was generally for most registrants going to be based on the same peer group they're using for other SEC requirements. So item 201 E again, um, or it could also be the peer group that you use to benchmark your kind of compensation disclosure and analysis in your proxy statement. So your CDNA. The next performance metric, net income, is exactly what it sounds like. It's net income. Um, the SEC staff actually provided kind of a CDNI to help clarify that, hey, net income performance measure that you're going to put in this table needs to be net income from your audited gap financial statements. Like you shouldn't use other derivatives of net income. So you're not going to do net income or loss, you know, attributable to con the controlling interest or from continuing operations. It needs to actually just be net income. Okay. Now, what about the last performance metric, a company selected measure? How is this determined? What are some things that we need to be thinking about there? Anything specifically we can't use or should? No, that's a good question. It's supposed to be your most important financial performance measure other than obviously net income and okay. total shareholder return because you're already including those that are used by the registrant to link the compensation paid for the most recent year to the company's performance. So this measure could be other US gap measures, you know, you could have revenues or operating profits or maybe segment profits or something like that could be something that would be used, but it can also be a non gap measure. So a lot of companies use EBITDA, you know, obviously as a as a way to gauge performance. Um, so EBITDA adjusted net income, other derivatives of gap measures are also okay. One thing you want to keep in mind is if you use a non-GAAP measure, you know, you should disclose how that number is calculated from the actual GAAP audited financial statements. So, you know, users have an understanding of how that's derived. Okay. Now you also mentioned that the rule requires a tabular list of these performance measures. Is that completely separate from the PVP table? Yeah. So it's separate from the table. So you're going to have one, your most primary kind of company selected measure in the table itself, but then kind of below that is a separate tabular list. Um, that's also supposed to include other kind of important financial performance metrics that are used to link pay versus performance. The list itself, like you don't have to rank them like, you know, most important to least important, but really should just be kind of a general list. And, and the rule states it should be at least three measures up to seven performance measures for the most recent fiscal year. Obviously, you need to include the measure that you included in your PVP table as being the most important in that list. But you can also have non-financial performance measures that are in this tabular list. So some people may also base pay on things that aren't derived from the financial statement. So it could be on more operational things like number of customers, um, number of data breaches, you know, a number of other like metrics could be used. And, and you generally include that kind of additional language if you feel like any kind of financial performance metric that you included in that tabular list might be hard to follow, confusing, and you don't want to mislead people. Um, and again, if you use a non-GAAP measure in that tabular list, you know, you want to explain how it was derived from a GAAP number. So if you're going to use EBITDA, for example, um, as one of your kind of three to seven top measurements, then just explaining like how that's derived. Okay. So Adam, what if a registrant uses fewer than three performance measures to link executive pay to company performance? Is that even something that's allowed? It is. I think, I think the SEC has the viewpoint that most people likely will have more. Um, but if that truly is the case that you have 
three or less performance measures that are used um, as part of evaluating pay, then you probably, you know, just include the three you have or the two you have, but you would need to kind of disclose that fact that these are the only measures we use. So I think one thing you got to keep in mind is if you include that in your, you know, your tabular list here, you don't want to have conflicting things like maybe you're on an investor call and now all of a sudden you're talking about different things that aren't reflected in this tabular list that might be linked to pay. So just thinking about all the different areas where you're discussing compensation and making sure you're not speaking to things that aren't like kind of represented in this tabular list. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the tabular list specifically. Okay. Anything that we need to be keeping in mind for how that information is presented? So they give you three options to kind of think through. So one, um, one is kind of having one full list that has it for all of the named executive officers, including your principal executive officer. Um, the second option is having two separate lists. So one separate for the principal executive officer and then one for the other named executive officers. And then the third one is having is like even more disaggregated is one for obviously the principal executive officer and then for each named executive officer having a separate list because, you know, there may be different metrics that are used depending on who the person is. So it may make sense depending on how a company actually kind of you know, evaluates pay versus performance for each of those officers. Okay. So lots of different options there. Uh, you also mentioned that the need for a description of the relationship between executive pay and performance. Expand to me a little bit on that and exactly what needs to be covered to essentially satisfy that requirement. Yeah. So there's flexibility here. I mean, obviously the objective is to really provide context behind that relationship. So between what's actually paid as disclosed in that table with the registrant's total shareholder return, net income, and whatever that company selected measure is. And they don't necessarily prescribe you have to have this long narrative, you know, explanation. Like they give the option, like if it's better to be illustrated through graphics or charts or things like that, you can present it in a number of ways as long as you're kind of clearly providing kind of insight into how these different measures in relation to what they're getting paid is clear, right? There's transparency there. The information is useful for investors or other users of the um, of those filings to, to understand that relationship. Okay. Now, earlier we mentioned that the new rule applies to proxy statements and information statements where executive compensation disclosures are required. Mm -hmm. Does it apply to any other filings within the SEC? For example, registration statements as part of an IPO or even just a registration registrant's annual report? Uh, it doesn't. So it won't apply to registration statements or annual reports. Um, again, it's it's really just proxy statements of so kind of schedule 14A um, and then other information statements that may also be filed where there's executive compensation disclosures required. So you, a lot of times you'll see that in a schedule 14C. One thing about the disclosures is that registrants are kind of permitted to determine where they want to put them in each of those filings. Um, so there's no necessarily prescribed way of like where they should actually go in the that that filing itself. Um, so kind of a little judgment there to determine what's the best location. Generally, I would assume most registrants are probably going to include these new disclosures kind of in the section of where, um, you know, they would already talk about 
compensation discussion and analysis is kind of the cdna part of the proxy or information statement okay now listen i know we talked on a previous episode about xbrl do inline xbrl requirements apply to this new disclosure yeah they do so the final rule will also require registrants you got to separately tag each value in that in that pvp table um, as well as the footnote disclosure and then block text tag the footnote and relationships using inline xbrl so subject to those requirements as well so we've just covered a lot of information but earlier we mentioned src's have scaled down requirements under the new rule what mm -hmm. are some of the accommodations that they are afforded yeah, so we talked about that, for example, that PVB table being kind of the, the largest component of the new disclosures, that being a five-year um, table, obviously a lot of information. So SRCs are permitted an accommodation there. They only have to present three. Um, and even so, in the first filing where this kind of new rule will be required, SRCs are actually per are permitted if they if they decide to to only provide two years of data and then obviously this following year they could add the third um, just to give them a little more like time i guess to, <laughs> to get ready for the undertaking uh, but then in addition to just having a reduction in the number of years in that table there's also several disclosures that we just kind of walk through that wouldn't actually be required for SRCs. so one they don't have to uh, present the cumulative total shareholder return for the company's peer group um, and the company's selected measure in that table. Um, they can omit the kind of the description of those relationships between pay and performance that we talked about that you would have to do um, typically for a company selected measure and a company's total shareholder return and that peer group's total shareholder return. Uh, they actually get to omit the tabular list so they don't have to have the three to seven metrics um you know kind of talking about the other kind of important performance metrics that are used by the company um and then they actually can omit having to worry and i don't probably don't see this as often but because fewer companies tend to have pensions but like for purposes of calculating that total compensation paid and that pay versus performance table like there's adjustments that have to be made to pension amounts um they're allowed to kind of omit those adjustments for for pensions just because there's a lot of work that's required to to ascertain those adjusted adjusted amounts. So a lot of accommodations <laughs> given to SRCs th yeah. thus far. Anything else? Yeah, I guess one more thing to tack on would just be just some accommodations as it relates to the XBRL kind of tagging requirements that we just talked about. There's a phased in kind of approach for SRCs, so they wouldn't have to actually tag this new disclosure until in the third filing where they're subject to the pay versus performance disclosures. Okay, so when do those impacted SEC registrants need to start worrying about these disclosures? And what does a transition period, if any, look like? So the disclosure requirements are effective um, for fiscal years ending, they said December 16, 22. So for calendar year end registrants that, that are within the scope, it's essentially going to be required in their 2023 proxy filing. So a lot of companies, you know, you kind of get through the audit waves and, you know, the early part of Q1, and then you naturally transition into your annual shareholder meetings. So you're preparing your proxy filings and things like that. That's when we're going to see the first wave of this. One kind of benefit, if you want to call it, and this is for non-SRC, so kind of just your, I call it your regular registrants, I guess. Uh, there is a little transition relief provided, um, especially in year one. If you think about a lot of companies, 
taking this on and then they're thinking, oh crap, I've got five years of information. I've got to kind of go back and track. Um, they do provide for some transition relief where a company could use three years and in its initial kind of disclosure instead of the five. And then each additional year, they would just layer on that fourth and fifth year until they got to their kind of five years going forward. So there is there is some benefits that allow kind of non-SRCs that might be tackling this as far part of their kind of proxy season, um, you know, in preparing that information and getting it ready uh, to go. So great. But next question would then be, what about for newly public registrants? How does this new rule impact them? And, you know, potentially what does the transition period look like there? Yeah. So we talked about it's not required for registration statements. So as they're becoming public, they don't have to worry about it in that statement. But then to your point, if once they are, they have IPO, they are now a public company. Um, you know, a couple things here to think about, like, one, if you are a newly public company and you qualify as an emerging growth company, you don't have to worry about the rule as so long as you hold that status. Um, but if you are a newly public registrant and you don't qualify as an emerging growth company, then you will be subject to the rule. Um, but they do provide, again, some specific transition guidance for registrants under those circumstances. So newly public non-EGC registrants um, only have to provide the pay versus performance disclosures for the years where they were considered a, um, a public reporting company. So basically the years where they actually had to file like a form 10K with the SEC. So an example here would be, you know, if a private company initiated its initial public offering in March of 2023, um, they would only be required in their 2024 proxy filing to include the year 2023 because it's the only year they actually were a public company. They wouldn't have to present prior periods where they actually weren't considered a public registrant. Um, but then in subsequent years, so in their 2025 proxy statement, they would then kind of add on an additional year. So they'd have 23, 24, and then over time they would build up to where they have the full disclosure requirements of the five years. Okay. You know, Adam, I think this has been a interesting conversation. I think a lot of changes happening over the course of this year in 2023 and and on uh, around this pay versus performance topic. Anything else though that we wanna leave with our listeners? Some last last bit of advice or anything else? Yeah, I guess like because this is introducing potentially a lot of information that a company's not tracking, and we, and we may have touched on it a little bit, but like I think companies need to, and a lot probably already have in, in anticipation of this rule, um, just making sure they have the right processes and controls in place to um, provide the information that's necessary. Um, you know, also thinking about since these are kind of new compensation related disclosures, whether there's going to be required reviews um, by compensation committees and things like that, making sure they're kind of pulled into the fold here. And then, you know, just again, just thinking about how you know, the registrant itself communicates executive compensation practices and making sure that, you know, what you're saying in investor calls or presentations or what you um, may be doing kind of outside the disclosures aligns with whatever you do include ultimately in this disclosure. And there's kind of reconciliation of things and it makes sense. And you're not telling one story somewhere and then these disclosures are presenting something differently. You just want to make sure you've got consistency there. 
Okay. Well, super helpful conversation, Adam. I know that our team here at Embark is prepared to help any of these companies out there that have any questions. Uh, and I'm sure you'll be the first one that they, they want to call. Listen to our listeners. Thanks so much for joining in uh, around this discussion and the new SEC requirements around pay versus performance. Uh, thanks so much for joining us and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Embark makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in the podcast series, and it should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Information discussed in our podcast may also be superseded by new guidance or as new interpretations emerge. Listeners are cautioned to carefully evaluate any relevant subsequent authoritative guidance issued.